Good morning, everybody. And good morning to those of you who are watching online right now. And uh, hello to those of you who are watching later on demand. Um, just a little reminder, we have a congregational meeting today. Uh, if you're a member, uh, really would love for you to be there. If you're not, you can still come. Um, but we'd love, to, we'd love to see you at 4 o'clock today. And we finish with dinner afterwards. So uh, please um, put that into your calendar if you can today. All right. So uh, do want to welcome all of you. And uh, so glad to see all of you. And I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And then keep it open because we're going to we're going to turn other place, at least one other place, uh, and read from that together or follow along as I read. Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of the Bible, and uh, we believe at Five Oaks that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. Uh, it's, there are mysteries in it, but understanding it generally doesn't have to be a mystery. Uh, God has a story that he's telling. Knowing what our part is in the story doesn't have to be a mystery. And so we look into the Bible every single week, and we apply it to our regular life and our everyday life and the way we think about life, and that's part of what we're doing today. And we're in an immersive series on Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we are in a sense still in verse 1, but it goes out, you know, it, it has tentacles that go out through chapter 1, through the rest of the first page. So we're actually covering a lot of material every week, even though we're still in verse 1. And today we're going to be asking again what we asked last week. So this is part two of a sermon I started last week. If you missed last week, you'll, you'll be okay. Uh, you'll miss some information, but it won't take away from what you need to get out of today. But we're asking the question, what is the Bible all about? And we're talking about the importance. We're going to go into some detail on that today and why, again, why is it so important to be able to answer that question well, and what is a good answer to that question? What are the characteristics of a good answer to that question? Now, along the way, we're going we're to learn some other things. We're going to learn why writing for a high school newspaper can help you answer this question better. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And uh, also along the way, I'm, I'm hoping that today for many of you, if not most of you, how you look at Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, that it will, it'll be changed forever, that you won't be able to unsee what I'm going to show you and, and help you understand why that is so important. So let's pray as we do every week, the prayer of illumination for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word into our lives and help us live it out. And then we'll listen to today's passage. So join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Illuminate your word by your spirit. Form us by your word and by the spirit into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do every week. Uh, lately, we have one of our youngest five, some of our younger five oakers uh, recite the passage for us. Genesis 1, 1. So follow along as we hear it. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, awesome. So why are we talking about what the Bible is all about? We're talking about it because of the last two words, the last two big words, not the word and, but the last two nouns, you might say, in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, which last week we talked about how that be understood as maybe the skies. And uh, from the, the Hebrew mindset and the Hebrew language and how God created the heavens and the earth, uh, which would be land. They didn't have an idea of a globe as we have and the perspective that we have from space of our own planet or even of a planet per se. They didn't have that perspective. So these two words, skies and land, help shape much of what comes, the, a good part of what comes the next uh, verses in the first page. So in verse 2, if you'll look back at verse 2 of Genesis 1, it begins with the land covered by water, all right? And so it says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the waters. So it begins with the waters. And then over the next three days, God forms the skies and the land. He forms them. And then in the next three days after that, he fills the skies and he fills the land. We talked in the first couple of weeks about what a literary masterpiece Genesis 1 is, and that's part of that. It's this, this symmetry that happens uh, with the words as it's described, with setting up the skies and the land and then forming them and filling them. This is all part of the order that God is, is communicating. We'll look a little bit at order next week because we're going to look about this chaotic seas uh, next week before we start our Advent series the week after that. As we saw last week in a video, the Bible Project video, uh, heaven and earth is the name of the video, skies and land also represent two realms. And so the realms that they represent are the heavens and the earth. And so they represent two realms. And the whole story of the Bible is how these two realms begin united. It's not like the heavens are over here and the earth. No, they begin united, and then they separate, and the story of God is about them coming back together. So we'll look a little bit at that today. So the video offers an answer to the question, what is the Bible all about? And the video simply put it this way. It said, the union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. This is what it's all about. And we're going we're gonna to sharpen that statement a little bit today and then talk for quite some time about the implications of it for everyday life, uh, all kinds of areas. So we'll spend quite a bit of time on that. All right, so the importance of getting what the story is about, the importance of being able to say to someone as we're uh, helping the next generation to become disciples of Christ and grow in discipleship as we're helping uh, new believers grow in their faith, seasoned believers grow in their faith. The importance of this can be illustrated in a concept from journalism, and the concept is the lead, the lead of a story. So the lead in a news story is the opening paragraph, and a good lead gets the attention of the reader and also gives the main information that the reader needs to know, all right, right in one quick paragraph. That's what a lead is about. I was just listening to a leadership podcast. We were talking to a communication person, a famous communication person. The communication person and this podcaster were both talking about, it's a leadership podcast, they were talking about how one of the greatest gaps, if not the greatest gap, according to one study, in American workers today is their inability to communicate orally to be able to say something that is going to communicate information, capture people's attention, that that is the number one skill that people need to have. So what I'm about to say now is not about getting better at work, but it'll help you if you listen carefully, because I don't know if it's ever happened to you or somebody is trying to tell you something. Just be, it could be at work, but it can be in regular conversations. It could be one of your kids, and you're trying to tell you something, and they lose you, you know, and you just eventually you stop and you go, wait, 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 wait. I'm not really getting, what, what is it you're trying to say? And it's amazing how when you ask that question, they stop for a second, and in two or three sentences, they say exactly what took them 10 minutes not to say, you know, up till that point. So this is a, this is a pretty good skill, skill to learn. So the story is told, it's a true story, about a journalism professor. And on her first day of class with new journalism, she's kind of introduction to journalism, she teaches the concept of the lead, and she gives them some practice almost immediately. And so she has this thing that she does. She goes, I'm going to give you the information that you need and where you're writing the article for. To whom are you writing the article? You're not going to write the article, but you're going to write the lead to the article. Now, you're writing for a high school newspaper, high school newspaper, and this is the information and now we want you to get to the lead. So the information is this. Uh, the following Thursday, all teachers and administrators are going to be going to an all-day seminar where the governor is going to come and some local celebrities, and they are going to talk about some new initiatives in education. And she says, write your lead. 
And so people write their paragraph lead, and then they turn it in, and every year kind of works out this way, although it's been in some famous books, so maybe some people know the story. And uh, she looks through them very, very quickly. She's looking for the right lead. <laughs> There's really only one. And she's looking, and then she throws them all away, and she says, you didn't get the lead. What's the lead? No school next Thursday. No school next Thursday. That's, that's the lead. So, um, then she talks about burying the lead. All right, so you know the concept of burying the lead. I, I've, I say it sometimes to people if I'm a little frustrated, you know, after they've been talking for a long time, and I finally say, why don't you tell me what you're saying? And then I say, you, you, you buried the lead. All right, so that's the concept of burying the lead. So, when people get asked, or if you were to ask a typical person in a typical church like ours, what is the lead for the Bible? Because that's what we're getting at. What is the Bible all about? Give me, in one paragraph's worth, just a few sentences, what is the lead for the Bible? A lot of people would say, tell me if this sounds familiar or not, any of these sound familiar. The Bible is a story about how we can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, last week we eliminated the question, the Bible is about Jesus. That's true, but what's Jesus about? Or the Bible is about uh, what Jesus, you know, the kingdom that Jesus taught about. Yes, that's true, but what's, what's that about? All right, so we'll eliminate those answers. So the Bible is a story about how to have a personal relationship with Jesus, or the Bible is a story about how you can go to heaven when you die, or the Bible is a story, this is more the theologically minded, the Bible is a story of how we can be justified by grace through faith. And all of those, probably if you been in churches like ours for some time, churches that teach the Bible and hold the Bible to be the Word of God, you've heard answers very similar to this. And all of these concepts are vitally important. I'm not downplaying any of these concepts. This is, this is the doctrine of reconciliation. It's, it's a big doctrine in Scripture. How can we have a broken relationship with God? How can we have that relationship uh, brought back together? How can we reconcile with Him? Um, uh, eternity is a pretty big thing. <laughs> it's pretty long. And uh, where we're going to spend it really speaks to our lives. So uh, that's a pretty big one. Think of John 3.16. And, you know, it's about eternity. And it's the Bible verse most people know. The Bible is a story of how we can be justified by grace through faith. This is like a major theme, certainly in the Apostle Paul, but it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And so these are really important themes. They're very important. I'm not downplaying them. All of them are hugely important, and in some ways, they might be the lead because they speak to a need. They speak to the reader, right? They speak to the hearer. And I mean, these, these are vitally important to our lives. If you understand them, you're like, yeah, these are really, really important, so that's going to get me to listen, all right? They, they're like, no school next Thursday for the students in the high school. But compared to the lead in Scripture, the first page, and then how you see that lead developed in Scripture, and then how you see how the story ends, where the story is going, what is the goal of the story? Well, um, it's not probably, any of those are probably not strong enough. And so uh, let me illustrate what I mean by taking that journalism story and changing some of the details. So once again, the teacher wants them to write leads. Once again, it's for a high school newspaper. But this time, instead of that, all the teachers and administrators are going to an all-day seminar on some new education initiatives, it's bigger than that. They're going there, and the President of the United States is gonna be there. The Secretary of Education is gonna be there because the federal government, the executive branch, has identified your district as this new kind of educational enterprise zone of some kind where they're going to try some experiments. <laughs> you might like some of these, you might not. But they're going to beta test some things. They're going to have drastically reduced class sizes, a you know, four-day school week, mandatory, rigorous physical education a classical curriculum. 
They're going to provide vouchers for families to send their kids to private schools if they don't want to do any of that stuff, or they're going to give an opportunity to kind of fast track into one of the trades and to become an apprentice in one of the trades. Now, whether you like those changes or not, you say, that's, that's huge. Those are, those are big, big changes. Now, if those were the details a journalism professor gave, and someone were to say, the lead is no school next Thursday, understates it, doesn't it? It's almost like disrespectful to students. It's like all they care about is whether they're in school or not. No, it's condescending, it's disrespectful to students, it's shallow, shallow way of looking at what's coming up the next Thursday. Students can, can get kind of like, wow, that's really going to change everything for me. Okay, this is what I'm getting at. Saying that the Bible or the gospel is about getting right with God, personally. Um, it's about a personal relationship with Christ. It's about going to heaven when you die. It's like saying, no school on Thursday for that scenario, the second scenario that I gave you. Again, extremely important subjects, but it falls short. It's not comprehensive enough. So the Bible project that we watched last week wasn't trying to create a lead to the story uh, of the Bible. It wasn't trying to create a lead. Uh, so it said the union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. It's very descriptive, but it doesn't really connect really strongly. Maybe it did when you saw the whole video, but it doesn't. Now, going to heaven when you die connects really strongly for some people, but it's not broad enough. It doesn't give enough of the big picture. So what is the lead? So when the Bible Project talked about that lead, heaven and earth um, coming together, it starts this way. If you you got to watch these videos about 10 times, and they say, they put an, an hour's worth of information into five minutes. You got to watch it about 10 times to really get the information. That's, that's the reality. But it sticks a little bit better because of the paintings and the pictures. So um, it said heaven and earth are two distinct realms. By the end of creation, they overlap. All right. Uh, when sin enters the picture, they separate. And you've got God's realm, his presence, goodness, justice, and beauty. You've got our earthly realm, which is sin, injustice, uh, ugliness. Just open the paper and, and that's right. It's not all it is, but there's a lot of that in our world. And so um, God, in some senses, you could say he has the right to abandon us to that, but he doesn't abandon us. He creates a way for heaven and earth to overlap again. And the way that he does that is through a concept of temple. It starts with a tabernacle with the people of Israel, and then it becomes a temple. It becomes a place through temple and the sacrifices is how the video develops it. The temple, the sacrifices were a way to, in a sense, heaven and earth over, overlap again. When Jesus comes, this becomes really important for the story of Jesus. If you don't understand this in the Old Testament, you get to Jesus, and there's a bunch of things he says that really don't make very much sense. But he says, I am the temple, and I am also the sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God. He, you know, he, John the Baptist says this, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the temple, but he's also the sacrifice that makes us right uh, with him. But he doesn't stay in his little temple like, you know, you all come to me and I'll touch you with my holiness. He goes out and touches people's lives. He goes out into the muck and the ugliness and he brings healing and he teaches and he tells people about God and he connects with people. And, um, and he takes care of hunger and uh, all kinds of diseases. And so... Um, when he leaves, he says, now you, my people, my disciples, you are my temple. All right? So we become the temple, and not just individually, but even more so as a people, as his church. And it's our job to not just stay in our little temple area 
or just do our religious thing and then go out and act like everyone else. We're supposed to go into the world and we're supposed to be temples where we go. Uh, we, we're, we're supposed to be, in a sense, there's all kinds of ways of talking about this. We're, we're outposts of God's kingdom wherever we go. We do kingdom work. We're, we're outposts of Eden where God connects with us. We're, we're, we're going into the world and we're making a difference in that world. And so a day is coming when heaven and earth will once again be reunited. God's space and our space will overlap again. Is there another picture? Yeah. They're gonna, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and they're going to overlap again. So turn to the last page of the Bible, or the next to the last page. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to see how this story ends. So it starts in Eden with these two realms together, and watch what happens here. Verse 1, 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the apostle John has this vision. He's communicating it to people who are living in a time of persecution. He's using a particular genre of writing called apocalyptic. He's using these fantastical figures to try to communicate a real story of what's going to be happening. And he says, when I saw, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. Now hold on to that thought because we're going we're gonna to look at that, that God dwelling with his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed. Now ask the typical church going person in a church like ours, what is the final, you know, destination? And they'll probably say, no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain. Because that gives us hope in times when loved ones die or we're facing death, right? But notice it's a, it, that's within a much bigger, much, much bigger picture. Now turn to chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, we're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage because if you haven't read Genesis 2 before or if you haven't read it in a long time, all this imagery comes from Genesis 2, the Garden of Eden, okay? So there's this river and the throne of God down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. There's a tree of life in, in the garden. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, Genesis 3. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Go back to Genesis 1. We've looked at it a couple of times already where Adam and Eve are put in the garden to rule. All right. And they are ruling once again. All right. So God's space, human space, reunited, everything being made right, a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth combined into one, replete with imagery from the garden, the two trees, God is present. There's all kinds of other details that you get. You look at Genesis 2, and then you read this, and you're like, yeah, this is describing Eden again, but it's not a garden this time. This time it's a city. So this is the new creation. This is the new temple in a way. It's very, very clear if you read it 
and become familiar with the story that it's telling. This is obviously a temple where God is, but the whole thing is his temple. This is where we meet with God. This is where he dwells with us. So you can see that there's, there's more than one answer to what the Bible is all about, but it's going to be something about moving from creation, uh, then the mess that we have made of everything, and then to new creation. But another way to talk about it is it moves from temple to new temple in the end. You may go, that's a little fuzzy for me. How does it start with temple? I mean, is Genesis 1 really about a temple? That gets us to the question of the garden temple. And uh, I'm just going to try to explain this concept here. I remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, I'm not convinced. I don't really understand what you're talking about. Hopefully, I can, I can help you from my, my own ignorance. So here we go. So there are these incredible parallels between the garden and the temple. All right. So generally speaking, the purpose of both the garden and the temple was for humanity and God to meet and dwell with one another. Okay. So that's, that's just, that's a broad thing. You can say that about a lot of things. But remember back in the first couple of weeks of the series, if you were here, we talked about the number seven and how number seven is woven into this masterpiece in a way that makes it a masterpiece. It's like, it's almost overwhelming the way the number seven is weaved into everything in, in chapter one. You've got seven days, but you not only have seven days, seven times it says good, which is, oh, well, there's seven, you know, there's, there's six days, but it actually skips a day and then it adds two goods to get to seven. You've got God, 35, multiple of seven. You've got keywords or multiples of seven throughout the chapter. The word seven in Hebrew, in the oldest Hebrew, the word seven, if you looked at it, is identical to the word completion or wholeness, all right? So there's, there's this connection of creating this, this holy place that God is creating, all of that and, and more. Seven words in the opening sentence, seven words in the next sentence, in the conclusion, seven words, seven words, seven words. It just goes on and on and on. It foreshadows the tabernacle and the temple. Now, if you want some of the details of this, you can look at your, I don't have it here, but you can look at the outline and the questions. I think it's question three actually has some of these details. But you have the construction of the tabernacle completed in seven stages. The ordination of the priests was seven days. Solomon's temple was constructed in seven years. The temple was dedicated to God during a seven-day festival on the seventh month. Solomon dedicates the temple with this dedication speech, and seven times he uses the same, uh, same phrase uh, in each of his petitions, in the, kind of for, for his petitions. And that scratches the surface of all the ways that you, if you were familiar with the temple and the tabernacle and you read Genesis 1, you're going to see it just coming off the page. You can't, you can't not see it. There's more. Humans are placed in Eden as God's image bearers. So in ancient temples, in the time when all this thing is being written, in ancient temples that the Babylonians would have, other people would have, there'd be a place in the inner recesses of the temple where an idol was placed representing the God. You know what the word idol is? Same exact word as image. The image of God is placed in the garden, is placed in his temple. No other idols allowed. We have an, we have an image, and the image of God is humanity. We represent God in the garden. We are his image bearers. We rule over creation on his behalf. The humans in the garden are tasked in chapter 2 with working and keeping the garden. Same kind of language is used of the work of the priests in the temple. They work and they keep. They work and they keep the temple. So we function, humans function as royal priests, that's a major theme in the Bible. We function as royal priests. We rule and we keep, we tend to God's, God's creation. We're royal priests. The tabernacle and the temple were modeled after the garden. So if you were to walk into Solomon's temple, 
all the decorations would be looking back to Genesis 1 and 2 from flora and uh, the menorahs, which represent the tree of life. And um, just on and on with the, with the details, it's, it's a garden scene that is being set up. Uh, later in Exodus, we're told that God ceases from work and then settled in on the seventh day. All right, there's a word study that I can't take you into right now. It's like this because I didn't, don't have time <laughs> to do it. I have it here, but I can't give it to you. But it's, it's, it, that is the picture, is that God creates, he Shabbats, he, he ceases Sabbaths from work, he ceases from work, and then he nuachs, he settles in to the creation. That's a picture of settling in. He's, he's living there with us, dwelling with us. So uh, Tim Mackey, in one of his studies on temple, has this. He says, in order to meet with God, you have to go to a temple, which is why the beginning of the biblical story is so fascinating. God didn't create a temple for himself. Instead, he planted a garden where he dwelt, dwelled with humans. Or in a sense, another way you could have put it, he creates a garden temple, is what he does. And then a great summary of this whole garden temple idea from Tim Mackey is, again, God's Sabbath was not a withdrawal from the world and its operations. It was a vacation. It wasn't a vacation or a nap. I've, now I've created the world. I'm going to go do some other things, and you guys live in it. No, rather, it was the point at which he stopped bringing order to creation and took him pl his place at the helm of what had been created. You see, the story starts with God living with us, dwelling with us, in a way that he doesn't now. Now it's through the Holy Spirit, uh, as we are his temples, all of that. It's a theme in scripture that is carried out through scripture, but that is what we lost. We not only lost a garden, we not only experienced the curse, we lost that kind of direct um, relationship, direct relationship with the God of the universe. And that's what's coming back at the very end of the story. Now, if we're going to tell people and teach people, what is the story all about? Don't bury the lead. <laughs> don't bury the lead. Don't, don't make this big story about no school next Thursday. It's a bigger story than that. And so, um, Tim Mackey, in, in the Bible study that I noted last week, um, he has this at the very end. His conclusion has this one paragraph, and I, I, I found it luckily. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is like a lead. This is a great lead. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus, the one in whom heaven and earth are being reunited. Our hope of seeing God's domain and our domain fully rejoined is what drives us to follow Jesus and pray that more and more of heaven invades more of earth and more of us. Now, another way to put this is, as heaven invades more of us, heaven meaning God's realm, God's dwelling place, God's presence indwells more of us, we bring that, back to that picture, we bring that to others. We go out as outposts of Eden into everywhere we go. All right, so what difference does this make? What does this look like in everyday life? <clears throat> That's what we're gonna talk about for a few moments here. This isn't in your outlines, but I left some space there. Uh, there's a last question in the outlines in the Sermon and Application Guide that asks you to think through this. And I really hope you'll spend some time, even if you're not in a small group, if you're one of our small groups, you're gonna discuss this question. You don't wanna show up there and not have an answer. <laughs> but even if you're not in a small group, I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on this. And what I wanna give you is just a start, okay? This is just, just a start. We're gonna look at different areas of life. Let's start with the area of politics because everybody's talking about politics right now as we're still waiting to see, you know, what are the results um, in several states and, and all of that. So we live as outposts of Eden, outposts of the kingdom, 
in our world. And in our world, politics is part of our world. And so we walk into the realm of politics, whether it's through conversation or um, political action that we participate in, or we're a politician or whatever like that. We walk into that realm. And when we go in there, we go there as representatives of Jesus. We go as representatives of Jesus. And so when we think about politics, talk about politics, vote, whatever we do with, with politics, whatever it is that we do, conversations, all of these things, we need to run everything through the filter of Jesus, the big story, the being representatives of Jesus out in our world, what God is doing in this long story, what is really what our world needs above everything else. We gotta be thinking about that as we do that, as we talk about it, as we teach our kids, all those kinds of things, model for our kids, all that sort of thing. So we need to run it through the filter. Now, here's the reality, and there's some people that would deny this, and I'll, I'll argue this, in, in, you know, I will, I will take a stand on this one. You can have the same picture of this and go in and run it through the filter, your politics, policies, what party you should be a part of, all these kinds of things. You can, you can run it through that filter and end up on the left, politically on the right, somewhere in between, or sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right. You can do that. There is not just one party. There is never just one policy. You can agree completely on an issue of justice. You can think of one specific issue of justice and disagree with Bible-loving, Jesus-loving, Jesus-representing people about what is going to be the best way to accomplish justice in this situation, a restorative justice, the kind of justice that the Bible talks about, okay? You can come to different points on the political spectrum, but whether you end up on the left, right, somewhere in between, sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, wherever it is that you end up, you have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the opposite end of the spectrum from you than you do with the people on that end of the spectrum with whom you agree on policy or partisanship or whatever it is that you're agreeing on. You have more in common with people that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, even though you have different ways of trying to take care of the problems in our world, of trying to do your part in being a good representative in the political arena. You have different ways of doing that. Not only are you gonna have more in common with them, you're gonna, you're gonna play by a whole different set of rules than everybody else. Because nobody else is doing this. You're going to be out there in the political realm seeking to be Christ-like. Christ-like. Living by His virtues, by the fruit of the Spirit, all those kinds of things. You're going to be out there living that way. So much so that people are going to be looking at you, Christian, and they're going to be looking as much as how you say what you say and what you believe as what you say you believe. And what's going to be, what are you going to be communicating? Where is your kingdom? Where is your true kingdom? Who is your king? What are you going to be communicating by the way that you communicate? What are you going to be communicating? And you will, you will, I, I, I really believe you will be willing to lose if winning means you have to be un-Christ-like. You would be willing to, you could say, no, but losing is going to have all these ramifications. We work for a very big God. And you don't know all those ramifications, but you do know what it means to be Christ-like. You don't know if those ramifications are really going to work out that way. But you do know what Christ has called you to be in this world. All right, so that's the area of politics. More that can be said, of course. Hours and hours and hours worth. 
but you're going to be this in the political arena. How about at the workplace? You live as an outpost of Eden in your workplace or your school, wherever you go. In your school, those of you who are students. Do you go there running everything to the filter? I'm an outpost of Eden. I'm a representative of Jesus Christ when I'm in my school. Do you think in those terms? Let's take work for an example because um, wherever you work, whatever you do, as long as uh, you're not doing something evil in your work, um, like putting out evil product, you know, destructive product, something like that, that's like, like horrible for everybody in the world, you know, that kind of a thing. But if you're, you're, you know, you're putting out product, something, you're doing something, it might be a knowledge product, it might be, it might be a, a physical product, whatever that you're doing. Um, your work is not just about making money. From a Christian perspective, if this is you, this isn't just about making money. It's not even about going into the workplace and being a nice person like exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's about being productive. So it's, it's, it's about human flourishing. I mean, we're going to talk about that. We're going to do a whole mini-series on this, um, or a series on this after the new year. How does, how does your work, what, what hap, what's happening this time tomorrow, how does that relate to God, the kingdom, creation, being God's image bearers? How does it, how does it relate to that? Well, it relates to more than you need to go so you can feed your family. You need to go because it's necessary for human flourishing. So a big term that's used a lot these days is quiet quitting. You probably have heard of it. You've read about it. Some people say, oh, quiet quitting is just about not letting your company own you anymore. Just kind of like, this is your life. And if it's that, good. <laughs> Especially as believers, definitely. Your company should not own you. Jesus is your God, your king. But if quiet quitting means I just do the minimal amount of work and get by, just so I don't lose my job, we've got a problem with Genesis 1. And we've got a problem with the whole purpose of work in the scripture, which is human flourishing. Human flourishing. And it's not that easy it's not that difficult to illustrate it these days. Okay, so there's all of the talk about what if Ukraine, you know, one of the breadbaskets of the world is the Ukraine, and if, or Ukraine. And if Ukraine doesn't get their wheat to certain places in the world, there is going to be hunger, and in some places even starvation. And so, like never before, everybody uh, can, um, can talk about, um, this was happening to me, yeah. What, what is it the kind of work you do, Hector did? Um, chain, not chain of command, but uh, supply chain. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so supply chain. I knew it, uh, and I couldn't find it here quickly enough. So think about it. We talk about supply chain now. Everybody talks about supply chain because of COVID, right? The things you can't get in the store because, like, someplace right now in Thailand, their water has gotten too high, and the factories broke down, and they couldn't make as many as they used to, and now that component of this thing, you know, and everybody's talking about this whole thing. So think of the supply chain of wheat getting to places that need to eat, need that wheat, okay? There's going to be hunger, possibly starvation in certain places if that wheat doesn't get there. And everything that went, if the wheat makes it, and we're not in a war, what, all the things that go into it. You can't, you need the farmers, you need the tractors, uh, the farming equipment, you need the O-ring that fits here and the rubber for the tires and all these sort of things. And you go back, so there's people that are putting that all together in a factory. And before they put it together, somebody else put other things together in a factory and built those things. And then they got people to know that they're doing that by traveling around to various Con conventions or whatever where the O-rings people meet. Okay, I know I'm getting ridiculous here, but, you know, <laughs> you tell that guy's a pastor who never worked a day in his life. Uh, you go, <laughs> you go where, I, I know I'm being ridiculous, you go where the O-rings people were, you know, do, do their things and let people know, hey, we're making O-rings. And, and so that's a hotel and they've got to stay there. And there's people that serve them food and restaurants because they've got to eat when they do that. And then when the people from the restaurants go home, they need to go to an apartment that isn't falling apart. And there's people that have... 
so that there can be wheat, <laughs> right? <laughs> Work is about human flourishing. And we don't recognize it until you work in supply chain <laughs> or all of a sudden you don't have the thing that you were hoping for. And some of the stuff that we have are just, you know, maybe, maybe it's a convenience or something like that, but it's not wheat. <laughs> so I'm going to go hungry. Everything. Every, the clothes people wear <laughs> to go to these conventions. Everything. We're, we're all, it's about production. Now, quiet quitting for the Christian when we're out there? No. It has major implications for how we do our work. Major implications for how we do our work. Sexuality. We lift the outposts of Eden and representatives of Jesus in how we express our sexuality, understand our sexuality. When the Bible says that God made us male and female, what does that mean in a world that says, no, those are fluid categories that we can determine for ourselves? Now, there's a whole complexity of issues with that. You can go back to our series we did on sexuality. We got into some of the complexities of that. Um, you can get it online. But what does it mean as representatives of Jesus. I don't, I'm not talking about the rest of the world, I'm not talking about public policy, I'm just saying it's representatives of Jesus. What does that mean for our sexuality? Um, raising the next generation. I shared several years ago how I used to pray that my kids would, uh, would come to know Jesus and, and live eternally with him. And I said, I stopped praying that. And now I pray in a different way for my grandkids. I pray that my grandkids will grow to love Jesus. Not just ask him into their life, love him. And that they will live on mission for him. Think of the great commandment, love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the mission. Here's the love relationship with God. That's what I pray for now. So how are you raising your children in light of this? Recreation. Uh, I like pickleball. I play at Prescott, where I live. Gotten to know a lot of the town, a lot of the people in the town because of it. And um, it's been amazing. Uh, how many people I've gotten to know in such a short time because of that. And so I find myself having to remind myself that when I go play pickleball, it's my, one of my recreational things, in Prescott, I'm going like this, so I don't really have a trouble losing or, you know, screaming or cursing at people or anything. I don't, it's just not, it's not the thing that I struggle with, but I want to play. I want to play, and I want to play as much as possible. It's my exercise. But because of that, for me, I've gone, I need to volunteer to sit out a game. Because when I sit out a game, it's amazing the conversations I can have on the side. And that's ultimately what my life is about. So even in my recreation, I need to be thinking about I'm a representative of Christ. The church community, think of the supply chain of making disciples. We think of the small group leader, the mentor of a mentoring group. Um, we think of me standing up here teaching. The worship team, we think of the upfront stuff. None of that happens. People don't get here to hear or come back to here or go to a small group or get involved in a mentoring group if not for this incredible supply chain that includes volunteers, people, I almost hate to call them volunteers, church family members who get out there and clean things up outside. So it doesn't look like we're, you know, in spite of our parking lot, which is going to get fixed. doesn't look like we're an abandoned Kmart parking lot, okay? <laughs> so that does its best to make that as welcoming as possible and comes in and that there are, are conversations and welcoming to sit down here and before someone leaves, as I say every week, you are sent and say hi to someone on your way out. It's part of the supply chain of discipleship. If you don't turn and talk to someone who's brand new and the other person doesn't turn and they leave, what do they say? 
That is the unfriendliest church. I'm never going to go back there again. It's part of the supply chain. Right now, nursery, teaching children, um, <laughs> making coffee and serving it. It's all part of the supply chain of making disciples. There isn't a minor role in any of that. It's all there for a purpose, this purpose. So whatever you're doing, you're making coffee this morning and serving coffee. You're working in the nursery. You're working concierge for new people. There are no minor players. You need that O-ring, right? You need it in order to accomplish. Think about, as you answer this question, think about all those areas for yourself, but then also think about your friendships, your neighborhood, your life of health and fitness. If you are this, how does it impact all of that? That's your homework. And the rest of the homework is learning to live in that prayerfully with the strength of the Holy Spirit to live in that. All right, so we're moving into the third movement of our service. We prepared, we listened to God's word, now we respond to how God is speaking. We begin our response to how God is speaking. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. It was the bread of Passover. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, as we remember him, we're, it helps us to remember Christ like his representatives. We're remembering him because we need to represent him. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that day when he will bring the new heaven and the new earth. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who has not given up on us. We thank you that you are a God who cares about justice and goodness. So much so that you are willing to be torn to pieces to pay the price for the ugliness, the death that we've brought into this world. Help us to live for you. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has never received you as Lord and Savior, Lord of their life, leader of their life, king of their life, Savior, reconciler, redeemer. I pray that they would put their faith in you today and help us all to grow into greater love with you and for our neighbor. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.